Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. However, now we are giving you an inside look into documentary filmmakers' journeys. I'm your host, Christian Taylor, and I am here this week um, alone. Jason Rugg is taking care of his grandmother. He is a dutiful grandson, and we just want to um, wish you, Jason, and your grandmother well. Uh, I'll be praying for your family, and I hope that your grandmother has a speedy recovery. Um, I would like to also take a few seconds before I begin to speak with you guys candidly for just a few minutes um, if you're a listener, a longtime listener, you'll know that Jason Rugg and I, as well as Josh Lindsay, our former co-host, were on another podcast. And we've been on that podcast for many, many years. Uh, I had been there for about 12 years or 13 years almost. And um, over time, things began to change. Um, people were leaving. I decided to stay. And then um, there was an abrupt change just a couple of weeks ago. Um, it shocked me and I know a lot of the listeners. And since that time, I've received an incredible amount of love and support from listeners all over the world who were sad to see me leave that podcast. Um, it was heartbreaking for me. Uh, it's been a very challenging couple of weeks dealing with that and figuring out where to go next. Um, but a lot of our listeners came over to join our Patreon. So we were at 26 Patreon supporters. Now we're at 119. They wanted to show their support for me, uh, which just was an incredible blessing. Uh, other people have started to listen to this podcast as a way to support and connect with me. So I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you so much uh, and give you the warmest of welcomes. I cannot tell you how much your support has meant to me. I have read notes all over the internet uh, about how much you guys appreciated what I did on that other podcast. And it has just been such an incredible blessing. And it's really made me feel like those years that I invested on that podcast were truly worth it. My desire is to be a blessing to other people and to help people on their journeys, whether it's a faith journey or a filmmaking journey. And so it really um, blesses me to know that um, that was the case. So welcome to our podcast. I really do hope that you will consider joining our Patreon if you haven't. Our company is at the point where if we want to continue going on at all, I have to grow our support in Patreon. So if you've been listening to the show and you find it helpful, inspiring, or entertaining, would you please consider coming to support our Patreon? Uh, and if you were a listener on the other podcasts and are coming here to show your support, and if you'd like to hear more of the kind of things I shared on that podcast, I'd also encourage you to join the Patreon for more of the same. I'm going to be a little bit more open and sharing my journey, my faith journey as a filmmaker and an entrepreneur behind the scenes on Patreon. So joining at the $5 level or above will be a considerable help to us. And you'll not only be listening to the exciting new things on the horizon for me and my company, but you will be helping shape what comes next. So if you sign up soon, you'll be able to join the Zoom party that I'm going to host uh, the first week of December. So we would really love to have you join us. I would love to meet you. Uh, so please consider that. And thank you so much for coming here to listen. Now, enough of that. Uh, today, I'm super excited because I have some new guests uh, that are coming here to talk about an incredible show. And I am just so excited to have them here. So Mark and Carrie Pedry, welcome to the show. Hey, Christian. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to be here. 
Sounds yeah, like so, an exciting episode too. Yeah, it's going to be That's great. Right. I'm just delighted. I've been waiting, waiting to meet you for such a long time and have this conversation. We have so many things in common. Uh, so before we get into all of that, I'd like to introduce your film and read your bios if you don't mind. Sure. All right. So this film is called Dear Sirs, and it is a very touching and personal journey of a grandson yearning to seek and better know his grandfather, yearning and seeking to better know his grandfather. So here's the log line for Dear Sirs. Mark Petrie had never heard his grandfather Silvio's story. Ten years after his grandfather's death, Mark found an archive of photos and letters that changed the rest of his life. The discovery inspired Mark to journey across Europe on a bike with Carrie to examine his grandfather's experience as a prisoner of war in World War II in an effort to understand the man who helped raise him. Uh, it is such a, I mean, a profound personal story. If you watch The Girl Who Wore Freedom and you realize that was a personal story, I think this beats it hand down. Uh, it really was an incredible intimate journey of what you learned of your grandfather. So I'm going to give your bios real quick, just so people know kind of your expertise and where you've been. So Mark is an expedition based documentary filmmaker and writer from Rock Springs, Wyoming. And his wife, Carrie is a scientist turned producer who got her start working as a scientific film consultant while she worked as a materials chemist researcher at the university of Southern California. Together, they run Burning Torch Productions, which is a boutique film production company that focuses on character-driven stories from the backcountry and the backroads of the world. Their films have played at international festivals, on national PBS, and on major streaming platforms. So you will understand now why I have them here. I feel like we have so much to learn from these guys. Um, first of all, guys, please tell me about these awards that you have won, because I see them all over your poster. Uh, I just want to hear more about the success of Dear Sirs. Wow. Well, thanks for the introduction. Uh, <laughs> I think sometimes you need to remind yourself of the journey that you're on, um, yeah. because the day-to-day feels just like a lot of emails and uh, <laughs> deadlines, but it's been exciting. And I think telling the story um, was kind of the, I guess, the honor of a lifetime for me to be able to connect with my grandpa and bring his story from um, the drawers in his house that he had left behind to screens all over the world. And I think that's maybe what people recognized in it and maybe some of the, the accolades and the awards, um, that's where it's coming from. It's, it's people seeing a version of their own story in this. And you're right, it is so personal. Um, and you know firsthand how that personal element, um, first of all, it, it's the thing that makes you do the project to begin with. Uh, without that, you know, who knows what we'd be working on. Um, but I think it's also the thing that brings people in and, and uh, those screenings we've had, um, a pretty good festival run, I think. Uh, you never know with the festival world where you're going to land. And I think if you claim to know, that shows how little you actually know. <laughs> right. um, we submitted to a lot of festivals. So if we showed you the list of no's to the list of yeses, I think uh, it's a, it's more of a story of um, <laughs> endurance. and Yeah, perseverance. Uh, finding, finding your audience. Finding I think, your audience is like, huge. Not every film is a festival film. And I think... Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't absolutely submit it around, you know, um, you made the film for a reason and it should be, you know, appreciated for that. But sometimes your audience isn't a film festival audience. 
Um, and I would say, you know, we started off with a festival run and we, we got a major award, uh, best documentary at the GI film festival in San Diego, which was a huge honor. Um, it's a film festival that, um, our films about and by military, um, anyone associated with the military. And, um, but then from there, that was sort of the end of our festival run. We had uh, a huge impact screening tour, which included a couple of tours in Europe, um, supported by the U.S. embassies in France and, Ber- and France and, and Germany, and and then also all across the U.S. And I think what we found is um, these community screenings were more where our audience was, and it was. You know, when you're in festivals and like Mark said, you keep getting no's, you keep getting no's and like you get that one yes and it feels so great. But it it felt easier, these community screenings. It felt like, you you know, you you can feel it, I think. Um, yeah. And that was really rewarding as a filmmaker. I think I want to jump in real quick. And what we learned that was invaluable that I think we'll take with every project is, you know, film festivals exist because film moves people. People love going into the theater and experiencing this communal event and seeing something for the first time with others. But not everybody um, is at film festivals. They kind of tend to to attract a film crowd. And uh, a lot of what Carrie is saying is, you know, there's so many more people out there that have that same love and, you know, they're moved by art in the same way, but they're just not, it's not, you know, they're not exposed to it. They don't live in Park City, Utah or Toronto, Canada or something like that. Uh, so we kind of went out on this journey to find those audiences and bring the film to them. And we were just met with so much gratitude and connection that I don't think we ever would have been able to plan for that. So those screenings um, really kind of extended the lifespan of our film um, in, a, in a great way. You know, it's it's gone from, you know, a three or four month festival tour to I think we're going on our second year now of community screenings. Yeah, it's it's amazing because I saw you released your film in 2022. I'm sure there was a lot of festival stuff before that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, and yeah, you are still kind of going. It's amazing to me as I hear you talk now, but also everything I've read on your website and that I've, you know, kind of dug around and found. It's so similar to my journey, uh, especially in this element where we found our most success in going to tiny little audiences in towns with museums or veterans groups or things like that, where um, people care about the actual story, not just the filmmaking part of it. Um, and it is such a niche, niche audience with World War II films, I think. Um, but you have to go and find that audience. So, um, so that is still going on for you then, these impact screenings. Yeah, yeah. And I think a big thing too that you mentioned there is the veteran community, which has been a big part of our audience because, um, you know, every veteran has a story, every veteran's family has a story. And a lot of times those stories don't get told. Um, and there's a lot of, I guess, reasons why that may be. Uh, sometimes there's trauma involved and it's hard to figure out how to tell that story or, or what parts of that story um, the veteran feels safe in sharing with those closest to them. But also, uh, you know, the stories that kind of get projected up onto like the big screen, you know, the big Saving Private Ryans. In a lot of ways, that kind of paints society in a way that um, makes it feel like there's a very, you know, uh, black and white um, version of a hero versus not versus somebody that's not a hero. And I think that kind of is destructive to people that have lived through these experiences because it's not so simple as it is in those um 
those movies, they're great movies. I, I go to see all of them. You know, they're iconic films that definitely have a place in, yeah. in our life, but uh, it's not really the voice of the people. And like your film and our film, I think it's much closer to what people are feeling in their hearts and their homes. So when something like that comes to their town, they just feel seen and heard. And like I said, they, they, they see a version of themselves kind of unfolding on screen. And in a way, that's what we're all looking for when we go to the movies. We're, we're trying to find, you know, these stories to, to believe in, to help us guide us through something that we're struggling with in our own lives. And the closer that our experience can be, um, you know, it comes back to representation. And that's why we need to have so many different stories being told is there's so many different people out there. And if all of a sudden your story is not being told, you kind of start to uh, feel that you're pushed down and, and fall through the cracks in a lot of ways. So um, veterans, we can't have veterans feeling like they're falling through the cracks because that's an incredibly dangerous place for, for them to be. And we've seen that, um, you know, in the past there's been gaps in the healthcare and mental health care and things like that. So a lot of these impact screenings have been focused on not just sharing a story, but how can we mend these wounds and bring people together and, and help, you know, bring something into the community that helps people heal. Yeah, I think it, I saw it in your film. It's also in my film. I feel like they are um, a bridge that can connect the civilian community to the military community. Because I don't know if you saw the movie um, Best Years of Our Lives by William Wyler. Um, if you haven't, you absolutely have to. But it is about these three soldiers that come back. Uh, they kind of go their separate ways. They don't know how to talk to people their friends and family don't know how to communicate with them. And it's just this heartbreaking story of not understanding how to communicate and people feeling isolated after a very traumatic thing. And, you know, what your film demonstrates is that it is so important to talk and to share. And mm -hmm. it's important for us to learn the questions to ask of, of, you know, what was your history? What can I learn? And it's not just about it shouldn't be just about World War II. I think these films should inspire people um, to talk to their grandparents that have never been in a war, um, starting to ask just questions of who they are so they do feel seen and understood. And so we are bonded to people that are older than us, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think you didn't get to do it while your grandfather was alive, but how beautiful now that you feel like you know him so much better and uh, you can share his story with the world. It was just, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself. We haven't even <laughs> talked about your movie. So, so yeah. why don't you just, let's talk about it and talk to me about how it started. And uh, it's just an amazing journey. So tell me about the film. Sure. So I guess the beginning, uh, there's two beginnings. The, the first beginning is, Carrie and I are living in Los Angeles. We we're I was working in the film industry, but not in the hands-on documentary day-to-day -day existence that I have now. It was more of a uh, working at um, a film institution, helping other people get their projects off the ground. So hearing a lot of pitches, helping people give the tools to make their dreams come true. And it was great. But I was kind of uh, seeing my own stories um, slip by just because, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And um, Carrie was kind of in the depths of scientific research, which is I still. Sounds intense. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness. Sounds super <laughs> intense. I think it sounds intense from the outside. On the inside, it's, it's very uh, similar to filmmaking, actually. It's a lot of the same skill set, which is. At first, when I transitioned to be to producing, I was very afraid because I'd never done it before. But 
once I saw sort of all of the skills that I had developed it, it was a it was a fairly easy transition. Anyway, well, talk about what you know. We'll we'll get back to him. I'm really interested <laughs> in hearing talk about what you did. Explain kind of what you were doing before you jumped into this filmmaking world. Sure. Yeah. So I had um, I had been studying chemistry since high school, and my undergrad degree was in chemistry, and I went to grad school at USC um, to study renewable energy materials. So like um, my focus was on flexible solar cells that you could basically you know, paint the material on a flexible substrate, like, like a sailboat sail or curtains. And then you could have um, solar cells in unique places like that. Um, and so I was, you know, researching and, and traveling around to conferences and presenting. And I just, um, you know, got to the point where I was defending my thesis and looking at the jobs. And I was like, whoof. I didn't want any of them. <laughs> and uh, it but was why it was, that's an interesting reason why. Yeah, I think the the there you know, when you're in uh, the depths of research, as Mark says, uh, you're so far from people. You're working on like the molecular level of a solar cell that may be in someone's house in twenty years. You know, you're so far from the impact that you have. And I think I was just missing that connection of like immediacy with people, and I wanted to you know, do something more connected with everyone else. Um, and so, so of course we're going to go to filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing was Mark and I had been together for 10 years at the time. And uh, this kind of my, you know, defending my thesis and looking at these jobs I didn't want coincided with him being ready to leave where he was at. What he was saying is like he was missing the filmmaking part of being in the industry, we kind of both had this moment together. And that's when we found the knife in Mark's grandfather's bed. It was all sort of, wow. And, you know, so then we, you know, found all these pieces of the archive and everything. And Mark's like, you know, this story is, you know, so unbelievable to me. Um, And he just kept talking about it with his friends and people at work. And they were like, what are you going to do about it? And then at that point we were just like, let's just, I think we should just give it a year. Let's try it. Let's, you know, see what we can do. And so it was very um, coincidental, all these things lining up. Uh, but it was very serendipitous. Actually, yeah. <laughs> The thing you don't see in the film is when we found the knife in the bed, um, we had both had full-time jobs, both had health insurance, you know, yeah, all these things. We're true. living in Los Angeles. And then we decide to leave all of that behind, um, move back into my grandpa's house in Wyoming in order to tell the story, both artistically, I felt like I needed to be here in order to really understand what was happening and and investigate and and truly grasp all of the stuff that he had left. Um, but also (laughs) financially (laughs) things like this, a personal project, you know, comes across your plate. There's not a line of financiers out the door waiting to write a check. Um, if it was their grandpa, I'm sure they would love for us to make that <laughs> film, but, but it's not. And you can't communicate to them that it represents something bigger until it's done. Um, and that was definitely the case for us. So moving into the house uh, was kind of a, an immersive way of telling a story. Um, but I think it was also a necessary way. Oh, and I think it was a beautiful um, 
a way to tell the story actually, because you did integrate the house and uh, the things. So it felt so genuine and real. And like, we were in the house with you um, again, we're kind of skipping ahead uh, because this film, uh, I'd, I'd love to know the very first thing that you discovered where you thought, Oh my goodness, I don't know my grandfather. He has this hidden history uh, we've got to figure this out. What was that? Was the knife the very first thing? But I mean, you had to think about something in order to go back and be there. How did that start? Yeah. So I think the knife was the big catalyst. The thing that says like, you need to look into this more um, because growing up, I had known that he was a POW, uh, but in a very surface level, you know, don't ask questions because, you know, the times we did, it resulted in him being very emotional and not being able to to talk about that. So, um, we also knew that there was this photo album that existed and it was something that, you know, we weren't really, uh, like, especially when he was alive, we wouldn't like run up and start looking through it and asking him questions about it. It was kind of like a, a thing that you don't mess with, but it was actually looking at those photos in detail after finding the knife and saying, okay, you need to look at this. You need to at least get an idea of who this guy was because you've based so much of who you are on him. So as soon as that photo album disappears, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a part of myself is no longer retrievable. So um, the thing that really, I think the biggest detail that caused me to be kind of lost in the desert metaphorically is looking at his journey as a prisoner of war and seeing that it was so much different than, you know, some of the pop culture references, the TV shows, some of the other documentaries about prisoners of war, some of the other stories that friends had told about their family. It and, certainly wasn't Hogan's heroes. That's for sure. Yeah, it was very different. And I think we're going back to something that, that we were talking about earlier is we're, we assume that all veteran stories are the same and that's like, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. So we see a TV show about prisoners of war and we just kind of think like, oh yeah, my grandpa was there. I wonder if he was, you know, cooking the soup or playing catcher at the baseball game. And it's like what I found in his own handwriting was so much different than that and quite traumatic. And he was never somebody to talk about hard times that he had been through. He just he never showed that side of himself. So to see it in his own words uh, just felt very vulnerable and, um, you know, emotional for me to to begin that conversation, even though at that point he had passed away 10 years ago. Well, so, yeah. I mean, it was, there was a treasure trove of stuff you show in the film, how when you kind of move back in to live in his world and experience who he was, the home was left exactly like he left it, uh, mm -hmm. including with his shoes on the floor that he took off probably the night before he passed. And I just, the things that you showed, you didn't say this necessarily. You did just show it. Um, it was a, his whole life was there. You could learn a lot by going there and digging around the house. And I was amazed with what he kept. Where did you find those things that he kept? It was all over. It was, <laughs> the interesting thing is that some of it was kept um, like the photo album was like, obviously someone had put those into place, but some of the stuff uh, was like in an old coffee can with um, parts to things around the house. Like that's where his dog tags were. And the silver star. And the silver star uh, was just in the coffee the, can. Yeah. The paperwork that went with it. And it, it, it almost was, Mark always says his grandfather wasn't a hoarder. You know, he 
he would throw things out. It wasn't like his house was full of stuff we had to sift through. Um, there was a lot still left, but it felt like um, he, it was a bit curated, you know, he, it wasn't that he's kept everything, which I think, you know, sometimes when you're going through the house of, or, or, you know, the things left behind by someone, um, you know, it's hard to decide what, what they, you know, meant to leave for you, or if it's just a bunch of stuff. Um, but it felt like Silvio left all these things for, for some reason, who knows, you know, we, we do know he didn't talk about it when he was alive. So, you know, he, he, he must've known someone was going to yeah. find it. He didn't talk about it, but he also didn't want it to disappear because otherwise yeah, it would have been very easy to throw things out with everything else that he had gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really loved the storytelling devices that you used um, and kind of the way that you told the story. You had an interesting storytelling technique. Um, I thought it was fascinating how you used his desk to present your story. That was almost like this backdrop of the way you presented the story. Um, It did seem to me that there were many more people involved than just the two of you. You know, you had drone shots there. You had, um, there's just all sorts of different shots where you're like, how could the two of them just do those cinematically. It was a beautiful film. I mean, from the very, very beginning, um, talk to me about this shooting aspect as well as the storytelling aspect. How in the heck did you pull all of that off? Hmm. Yeah. Don't want to burst your bubble, but it was just us two. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I think part of what, uh, makes our team, like, I think it's a superpower and sometimes, you know, a crutch, but we are very um, hands-on and we, if we can do it ourselves, we'll do it ourselves. It's almost like, you know, we know each other's skill sets and we trust what each other can do so, so well because we are so life partners. Um, so when we started thinking about how are we going to, you know, shoot this thing in Germany and France, should we have, you know, a crew follow us? Should we have support? What, what do we need? And we just thought of the logistics of it. And we were just like, you know what? If we don't have a crew, then we don't have to have, stick to such a schedule. We don't have to like feed the crew. We, we don't have to fund the crew. <laughs> and so we just like, we considered both options and, you know, luckily we're both cyclists to begin with. Um, so we were very confident that we could do the bike ride. And I think from a producing standpoint, it was just like, let's just keep it as simple as possible. Partially because of, you know, it makes it easier. Um, and harder at the same time, but also because Mark himself was going through this process of getting to know his grandfather. He's going to be, you know, processing all this along the way. And we just weren't sure how, how much time that would take. You know, we wanted to give ourselves space to stay, you know, a couple of extra days in a place, or, you know, if we needed to spend more time shooting somewhere, you know, slow down the bike ride. So I think um, we, that's why we chose to go just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, for the drone shots, if you look closely, you can see Mark on the bike, just he's got the, the controller, the controller yeah. on his hands. Um, and he, I think that's Mark's, um, you know, power behind the camera is pretty impressive when you know that he shot. I mean, I was handed the camera a few times, but it's, it's all Mark. So you, you weren't shooting 
I mean, seriously, you shot most all of it, Mark? Yeah, unless I was on camera. <laughs> I was, or even when I was on camera with the drone. Yeah, we didn't have anybody. The only people that we had helping us in Europe were uh, researchers who we met in a few of the towns. And that's it. Other than that, it was just us two. Yeah. Or like somebody that would take us in and buy us dinner for the night or something like that. But it is remarkable, uh, especially the drone shots. I, I really would have to say they were, they were beautiful. They were well done. And it, it really did make me feel like you guys were just riding along doing your thing. Uh, and someone else somewhere was controlling this drone. I'm just stunned to realize that that was just I, you. I think one thing for the filmmakers out there, what you, it, and I think this is me coming from the outside uh, into filmmaking later. Um, it's so, you forget how m much simpler things become when you don't have so many people to take care of and to tell what to do. So I think when you don't have to have a call sheet, when you don't have to, you know, think about where everyone's going to stay, it frees your mind up a lot. And I think in doing that, we were able to say, you know, we're biking for a whole day. Let's take some time and get a drone shot. And you don't have everything else on your mind of like someone asking you, hey, when do we meet at this location and blah, 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 troubleshooting yeah. things. And I think as a, as a, you know, a new filmmaker, I think that's, an excellent place to start. You don't need a huge crew to make something great for sure. It, it's like, I think it's a very universal thing too, of like uh, how, how much is your filmmaking practice impending the subject that you're documenting. And for us uh, having other people there, having a crew, it would have completely changed the experience that the subject was having, um, you know, s similar in the, uh, I guess, free solo, to make a weird comparison, you know, Alex Honnold didn't climb that mountain to be on camera. And that was a very clear boundary that he laid out at the beginning. He said, you can document it, but we need to be very careful about, you know, my goals as a climber versus your goals as a filmmaker. And uh, in that case, you know, they had to make some, some very clear decisions about how they were going to interact with them. And they, long story short, they didn't have the mountain crawling with all these, you know, cinematographer ants in every little intimate moment that Alex was having on that mountain. And uh, for me, you know, going through that journey, um, the camera was a tool for me to help understand what I was going through. It's, it's always been there for me as a kid, you know, ever since I got my first film camera, uh, it, it's a way to digest the world emotionally. So, you know, what better way to make sense of this journey, um, you know, documenting it firsthand with this thing that I've always had. So it was kind of a perfect storm of the subject is going through this very emotional experience to connect with their grandfather. And the way that they process that is by documenting it. So yeah. the drone shots, the shots of, you know, pigeons flying off of a roof or something like that, or, or crows in a field. That was something that I never would have been able to direct had there been a camera crew. That was all a product of, you know, being there in the moment, feeling the different emotions of, of connecting with this person and looking around and saying, okay, what, what am I feeling right now? And how do these things play into that? So Yeah, I think that was something that I was thinking about during the movie as a filmmaker myself. I was realizing everything that was going on in that, in the fact that you were having an emotional experience. I've been in those same situations. In June, I was following my own great uncle's footsteps. When you were in that situation, it is overwhelming emotionally to realize that they stood there 
They saw this, what they lived through. There's no way, you know, when I went to Germany and I told, showed people the castle that my great uncle drew, uh, they were in tears because they couldn't believe I'd come this far to find this castle and that, you know, my relative had helped liberate their town. And so there is all of this emotion that is tied up in that. But that wasn't the only thing going on for you. You were having a like cross country bike trip. I mean, <laughs> to think that you and, and you didn't show you didn't focus on the difficulty of this bike journey. You you sort of integrated it in some of your shots. Like there was this what I thought was remarkable. Clearly you had a bike problem. You went into a bike store. Uh, you had to get a part. But all you showed was walking in the bike store, getting the park, and you're on your bikes, right? Um, and I just thought, wow, we're not really hearing that whole backstory. But that backstory of that journey seemed very hard to me. So you have this emotional journey that you're taking, the physical journey of the bikes. And then you've got this third brain, which is we're going to be thinking critically about how to document all of this. Um, that was a lot to juggle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the short answer to that is we made three different films. You know, we could have cut together just the bike journey. And what uh, prevented us from doing that is um, it was, there was a risk in emphasizing our struggles too much, uh, you know, in a comparative way to what my grandfather or any of the, the prisoners and soldiers that um, were with him during that time. So while those things were a big deal in our lives and we did document a lot of that, like the scene where the bike broke, it actually happened three different times. So that was a, uh, that was a really big problem for us. But when it came down to telling the story, it just felt so trivial to be worrying about, you know, oh, my wheel is squeaking and now it doesn't turn. Whatever will I do? Oh, I could probably just get on a train or rent a car or, you know, I have all of the freedoms and, and everything's at my fingertips. Whereas these prisoners 75 years ago were starving, freezing, sick, you know, their future was completely, uh, undetermined and, and they were just, they were prisoners. They had no freedom. So, um, that kind of acted as a, a North star, I guess, when we actually sat down and started editing the film. And, uh, it, at any point, if it started to feel too much like a, an adventure for us, that was usually a sign of, we need to refocus back on Silvio's story. Um, <laughs> except for with one exception where we do call to the fact that like we are on this adventure and it's kind of amazing. And that's yeah. what we're going to remember, um, which is in total opposition to what my grandfather is remembering and how it changed his life. But I think that was a bit of the elephant in the room. We had to to call attention to that. Yeah, I thought that was remarkable. I think, Carrie, you said it was it was very insightful at the moment, which is this is a horrible situation. We are freezing this. It is so cold today. Uh, not nearly as cold as it was when your grandfather was in a boxcar with hardly any clothes on going the same distance, you know, and, but you're freezing. And in a sense, no matter where you are in time, if you're freezing in that moment, you're freezing. And you're like, one day we're going to look back at this and it's going to be a beautiful moment. You know, we're going to remember nostalgically what we did together. Uh, right now, you didn't say this, but right now we're freezing our asses off. But <laughs> one day this will be beautiful. So yes, you did call attention to it um, every now and then. Um, I had somebody say to me when I was making The Girl Who Wore Freedom, and it was just this incredible, I felt like I was in a battle, like with different people in our production and problems with this and that. And it was just 
so excruciating, not enough money. And I felt like every day I was fighting just to get through this thing that I decided to do in the beginning. And a very faithful, um, faith-filled woman said to me, Christian, I was praying about this last night. And I realized that you are going through this so that you can really understand and empathize with the people that suffered and went through battle for real so that you can tell their story. And as a sense, that's what I saw in your own story. You were suffering to a degree as you're trying to tell his story. And I think it gave you even more empathy knowing that his situation was completely incomparable, you know? And I, I listened to you tell it going, how did anyone survive at all? It was yeah. awful. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that makes it so hard to talk about for the people that do experience it. There is this survivor's guilt and they've seen, you know, the day-to-day version of this experience, which is so much different than, you know, the historical account or looking back or the documented account. Um, Because you think about when somebody talks about a traumatic experience or, you know, going to war or serving, we think about it as a whole, but they experienced every minute of it, every day of it. And it was, it was long. It wasn't just, you know, Oh, one day it was cold. It was, you know, one day we crossed a river and then the rest of my life was different. Um, and there's so many moments that are built into that. And I think one of the things that was kind of personally, I guess, hard to grasp, but also in the film, it was maybe a technical thing that was hard to achieve, uh, is the liberation because even to this day, people go back to that camp in Sambossel, family members, and they they go there to you know memorialize the people that um, that were lost there, but they also go back there to commemorate the happiest day of their life, which is crazy to me because when I went there, it was the darkest place I've ever been. You know, the, it just felt like so much darkness had happened here that you'll never be able to separate this place from that darkness. But then you see that the people that experienced it, there's this version where they talk about, I was free. And for the rest of my life, I was free. And that's, that's just a, something I could never wrap my head around because I, I only see the, the trauma in that. And for them to go through the trauma and then see this light, um, we, we tried to capture that in the animations. Uh, and then even the score in a sense where that, begins the journey of my grandpa going home and, um, you know, returning back into this world that he had left and, and wasn't sure if it was still going to be there. He writes to his fiance, uh, not knowing if she had waited for him to come home. I mean, can you imagine that being a prisoner surviving and then writing this letter to your love saying, I hope you still love me and that you'll take me back. Even though after all I've been through, I still love you. It's just like, there's no one emotion that describes that. And I think that's why I needed to go on this journey because I don't think that I would have been able to, to understand it for myself or capture it in any way other than both the physical suffering along with these immense moments of gratitude and appreciation for what these people went through. Yeah. You're talking about the last prisoner of war camp that your grandfather was in. Um, you do see it in the film. I think it's a beautiful thing that it kind of still like partially exists because you can go back and you were able to go in and kind of see what it was all like. I have to say, I didn't realize how similar the prisoner of war experience was 
um, for the people that were taken prisoner by the Germans to uh, the Holocaust experience. Now, you can't ever you know, equate anything with what the Jews went through um, during that time. But they did treat these prisoners of war the same in the sense that they starved them. They didn't give them clothes. They shot and killed them if they weren't working or they just threw their bodies out until they stacked up and had to be taken away. I mean, the images that you showed of the prisoner camp during that time were very similar to images that I had seen you know, from different concentration camps. Uh, and so it does give you a sense of how horrible, um, you know, your grandfather must, the experience he must have gone through. Yeah. And I, that was something too, that we've kind of encountered throughout the filmmaking process. And, and after sharing the film, um, the prisoner of war experience is so uh, complicated because there were some camps that, you know, for officers or uh, in particular British and American prisoners where, um, they were treated humanely in terms of how the Geneva convention decided that prisoners of war should be treated. So take that however you will. And then on the other end of the spectrum, just talking about prisoner of war camps, not concentration camps, there were the camps that housed Soviet prisoners. Um, they did not treat them equally to what they treated prisoners from the West whatsoever. And that, I mean, that just kind of pulls back the the layers of, of the horrors of war and how we um, dehumanize people and use things like ethnicity and religion in, as, a, as like a, a wedge to say, well, you know, these people can be treated this way, but these people have this other feature that allows us to completely disregard their rights. And when we talk about it, I think we have to be careful on how we talk about it because even in my grandpa's case, where he ended up in one of these Soviet prisoner war camps, where the conditions were far, far worse than the camp he was supposed to be in, quote unquote, I'm off screen here. Um, that still was better than the concentration camp. Yeah. And one of the things with his experience that I think is so much, it's just so complicated. He started in the camp for the Westerners. So he saw what the Geneva convention had stated a prisoner of war camp should look like. He had the opportunity to write letters home. Then he was moved to this other camp, which was the, the opposite of that. You know, that they, people were starving, people were being forced to work. People were, you know, uh, essentially being killed um, deliberately, uh, not in the gas chamber sense, but they were being starved or they're being worked to death or shot or shot. And then just when you think it can't get worse, an actual concentration camp, marches the prisoners the political prisoners civilian prisoners and you see that it's just it's so complicated um yeah one thing i wanted to point out is how we throw around that term concentration camp and i think sometimes um we just have to be careful with we've heard some people call uh prisoner of war camps concentration camps no um and they're certainly not the same thing and it was very very rare that there was ever an intersection and in fact in our research we my grandpa wrote in one note that he was in a concentration camp and we just knew that there was something there that wasn't quite lining up because he wasn't in a concentration camp. But what had happened is that the camp he was in, like I said, merged with the concentration camp at the end of the war, which made him think that uh, that's where he was in fact, but um, they were, they were yeah. very different places. 
I'm glad you clarified the difference. I think from watching it, you see similar images, but yes, they are very different. Um, let's talk about the archival. Um, it, it was phenomenal. And at the end, you know, there were so many similarities as I was watching this, you know, when you said that he was in the 95th Infantry Division, the 377th Regiment, I was like, oh my goodness, that is C.O. Bowers you know, regiment. And C.O. Bauer, of course, was in the Girl War Freedom. He was really the rock star of our film. Uh, he did live through the Battle of Metz, uh, but was injured on November 8th. And that was his million dollar ticket home. He became a millionaire. Um, he was not as fortunate. Um, he was more fortunate than your grandfather, unfortunately. Um, but also the other similarity was that you used the same researchers we did, uh, Myra Miller, Joey Van Mason, uh, Footsteps researchers. We want to give them a shout out. They're pretty phenomenal. Yeah, oh they were gosh. they were great. Joey drove down from, uh, I believe he was in the Netherlands, still going to college at the time. And, and he, uh, helped, he helped find the, the foxholes that are in the film. He was with us on that shoot. And so the way we um, wound up working with them is, uh, we had all the stuff that was in Silvio's house and we tried to figure out what all of it was, put it into some kind of chronological order and um, make sense of it all. And we just got to a point where there were so many holes and so many questions. And we were like, you know, we, I think we need to go to the National Archives and pull his records and get some, you know, clarity on this. But we, neither of us had ever been there before. And um, yeah, I have a research background, but it's in science. So it was not so helpful at the National Archives. Um, and I think it was on Instagram that we found them. Uh, and we just, I think Mark sent a message over that. And um, they were like, yeah, we'll, we can pull stuff for you and help you understand it. Joey spent time with us understanding maps, understanding what after action reports mean, what um, unit journals were, and, you know, finding Silvio's name and all these lists and, you know, descriptions of what happened from the front lines. Um, it was just phenomenal. And then when we said, you know, we're, we're coming to do the, to bu do the bike ride, Joey's like, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to come, I'm going to be, and, uh, he was invaluable over there. So helpful. And, um, it was such a treat to be able to be there with someone who has such a vast understanding of the greater picture of just this, um, history, um, on the ground there. So yeah, footsteps researchers. Shout yeah. Out. I met um, Myra Miller and Joey Van Mason through Flo Plana. Flo Plana is an our film. He is a field guide in Normandy, and but he is way more than that. And he and Joey partnered together on lots of then and now photos that you can see on Snafu Docs, or you can see them on World War II Veterans Memories, which is Flo Plana's Instagram page. Um, but the, I, the exact same experience was true for me. They took me to the National Archives. They taught me how to get my research, you know, little certificate, and I was able to go in and put in requests for people. And then Joey and Flo Plana took me to find the foxholes of my great uncle uh, with the 84th Infantry Division. So he did the exact same thing uh, with me. And standing in those foxholes, uh, it was just mind-blowing to think that they could find the actual foxholes where they were. So, uh, yeah, I'm so happy that you had the opportunity to work with them. And if you guys are listening to this podcast and you need some sort of researcher in Europe with anything having to do with World War II, uh, footstepsresearchers.com is the place to go. Uh, so, yeah, that's just phenomenal. I'm so glad that they were able to to teach you so much because I do see how impactful it was for you. Yeah, I mean, 
the like the stuff we found in Sylvia's house was enough to scaffold our story around. But the the reports and everything that were in the military files really filled that in. And then um, by the time we were ready to go to to Germany and France, we still had questions. We still there were we we didn't really understand um, the final camp that Silvio was at. There were questions surrounding that. There were questions surrounding um, the hospital that he was in. And so some something we really relied on were local uh, archivists and historians in the towns that we went to. And, you know, we called ahead and said, hey, do you think you could help, you know, clarify this? Because that stuff isn't online. You can't just Google it. So they were pulling books and trans translating them for us because it was in German or French. Um, and so we owe a lot to the local historians, which are, um, you know, I don't know if it's the same in the U.S., but it feels like it's more uh, common there. Every yeah. town had a local archive and an archivist, which um, saved our butts more than a few times. Well, they say. have a lot of history to archive. And, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, they've been at it for a long time. So talk to me uh, about the most difficult thing or m- maybe three of the most difficult things uh, in making this film. What were the hills you had to climb? Boy, there, well, there's personal hills. And then I think there's the filmmaking perspective hills. Um, I, I think personally, it was figuring out how to tell the story and um, knowing that, you know, you're, this guy was not just my grandpa. He was a father, you know, a brother. Uh, he has a, a lot of other grandchildren who had significant um, experiences with him. So just trying to balance out, you know, how to tell this story, how to tell it in such a personal way. Um, but not, you know, rule out the fact that, uh, it it wasn't just him and I hanging out all the time. Like there was a lot more to his life. Um, that was hard to balance. And I think being that close to your, your subject and kind of a side subject of a film, you're also editing. Um, it's really kind of horrible. And that's where Carrie was a huge, um, help just having very honest and you know, sometimes overly critical, brutal feedback. <laughs> uh, there were some tears cried for all reasons, you know, the weight of going on this journey, um, but then also coming home and figuring out how are we going to tell this story? Uh, I think a couple times we abandoned it, or at least I did. Um, I think the the other thing uh, for for the audience is that Mark, you know, this was his grandfather. He went on the journey. He wrote shot, directed, edited the film. He he was just so in it that like, you know, he would say, you know, I have a, I have a scene, I'm going to show it to you. And he was such a big deal for him to show me. And coming from science, I'm very to the point, uh, or I used to, I, I've gotten better through the process, but I was just quite critical. And I think like, as uh, you know, the, you know, putting that forward, um, any editor, you know, you put that, you put your, what art you've just created, you've cut together and to get critical feedback is really tough. On top of that, it's your personal story. On top of that, you feel so much pressure um, and responsibility to tell the story in a way that is true for not only you, but all the other people in Sylvia's life. Um, I think that relationship was at the beginning, I didn't realize how much Mark was putting himself out there with every you know, new edit he had. And I think that, um, you know, as a producer, that's something so delicate when you're working with a director or an editor. Um, 
to, yeah. to understand what it is that when they have a new cut for you, how vulnerable that is to show, you know, and um, giving critical yet uh, sandwich <laughs> yeah, gentle, gentle yeah. feedback is because once it's broken, you can't fix it. That's, yeah. And we've been on projects like that where you're getting notes that just feel like they're they're too technical and they're missing the entire emotional arc of everything. And they're like, you start to question, like, did they just watch this five minutes as they were driving to work? Or like, there's no and once that's broken, you can't fix it. So um, thankfully, we we didn't break anything in this film. We actually got married during the middle of it. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that on top of everything else? Oh my goodness. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to get married in Metz, France, but Carrie oh, said, oh, no. that, that separate these cool. two things a little bit. Yeah, yeah, her practical mind. Um, <laughs> I think that is such a great point in terms of how to work with an editor. I had this conversation with our composer, Jeff Kurtnacker, when um, I was kind of being overly critical about, I don't know, instruments he was going to use or and anyway, he got very emotional and said, I don't think I'm the filmmaker for you. And later, you know, we joke and laugh about it now, but I didn't realize either how vulnerable people are when they create a piece of music or they do edit something together. It is a part of who they are and they're showing you something even more so if it's a personal story like yours. So uh, I think that's a great note to people. Thank you yeah, for that. I mean, you can definitely over direct and I think that's not good. <laughs> like you, even working with our composer, James, um, it was, he brought so much to it that I wasn't able to articulate. And in retrospect, um, the worst things I would do would be like, hand him a piece of music and say, how about something like this? And as soon as you do that, I mean, some filmmakers prefer to work that way. Um, and maybe some composers too, but like you can get locked into that source music and, and it's just, it wasn't created for what you're trying to do. It's just something that kind of looked like something that might fit. Uh, but what James helped me realize early on before we even shot a frame of footage, I mean, he was writing music um, before uh, the music was written before the picture. Um, wow. It's great. Then uh, you're following Ken Burns's footsteps because that was something I learned that he does when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. He lays down the music first. It's the first thing he has. So that's I'm interesting. It's, yeah. I think it's invaluable because the, the music is a, another language. It's like having a dialogue track. Um, and if the composer, if you're having that conversation early on, like James, he writes in music, he's writing mm. this story and uh, in ways that I never could have given him any kind of source music that would be moderately close to. Um, so in a sense, he wrote exactly what I needed. Um, but maybe I didn't know that I, I wanted it right away. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Um, we're going to take a pause here for a second uh, and come back. So now we're paused. Uh okay. We're sort of at our time, but I still have more questions and we haven't done DocuView Deja Vu. And so I'm wondering if maybe we could wrap this one up and maybe start again, if you have time. If not, that's fine. Sure. Yeah. Um, you have do, time? Oh, it's right like now. Oh, okay. I thought, okay, another time. Yeah, sure. How About okay. how much more time do you think? How much time do you have? Um, let me look at our calendar real quickly. I am, I'm fairly open. I could do at least another half hour or more. Yeah, I think we can do a half hour. Okay, so That's let's fun. shoot for that. Um, I'm going to have one of you do the DocuView Deja Vu. Okay. And then your DocuView Deja Vu, we're going to close and then we'll start over. Who do you, do you want to go? Or do you want me to go? Uh, I think you should. You're the director. 
Oh no, we're both going to do it, right? Oh, just you're one. Both, you're both going to do it, but just one for this segment and then one for the other segment. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Um, it's just who wants to go first. Uh, I, I, I guess I can go first. Okay. That <laughs> <laughs> was quiet. Um, too. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to jump back in. So just give me a second. All right. We are running out of time for this episode. It's been such a delightful conversation. I do still feel like I have a lot of questions to ask you uh, about this. So I'm wondering if maybe you could come back again and we could do another short little segment. Would that be all right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Keep it going. Super. All right. Before we go, we're going to jump into our segment, DocuView Deja Vu. All right, Carrie, here we are. Do you have one to recommend for us today? Yeah, um, this one I didn't expect I was going to like so much, but it's Boys State that came out in 2020. I remember yeah. this. Yeah, and it's something that I, you know, the the idea of Boys State is put on in, I think, every state. Um, and you just, through the film, you get to see these young boys trying on who they think they want to be. And they have to create a government within themselves. They're, um, you know, randomly dis it's uh, separated into two different parties and they have to elect people. And at the end, I think it's uh, one person gets to become the president based on votes. And um, it's just such a beautiful picture of distilling our crazy society into a, a, you know, a documentary that you can watch how things happen so fast. I think they're only there for a week. It's phenomenal. Um, the, the producing was just otherworldly to, to how they shot it was incredible to get that much access and, um, you know, authenticity from these young people. Um, and the other reason I like it is because it was directed and produced by another filmmaking couple, um, like Mark and myself, it was Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain. Um, and I just think it's, it's a fun film. It's incredibly entertaining, but it's also just a phenomenal look at society on a, you know, in a grain of sand. Micro scale. Yeah. In a Petri yep. dish, really. Awesome. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to reserve my DocuView Deja Vu recommendation for our next segment where Mark will also give his. So we're going to wrap up here today. Thank you so much for your time. Really encourage everybody to see Dear Sirs uh, and also come back next week for the second part of our interview. So we're going to just wrap it up. Um, we would love that you'd listen to us today. Thank you so much for being here and listening to our podcast. Um, this is Documentary First, where we believe everybody has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Bye, everybody. The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.